0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Hey everyone. Oh, hey everyone. Good morning. So glad that you are here today and want to welcome all of uh, you watching in Port Perry and in Bowmanville. So I was in England a few weeks ago, gathering with thousands of other people, celebrating what God is doing globally through Alpha, which was an, an incredible experience being in Royal Albert Hall with thousands of people worshiping Jesus. It was just an amazing experience. In the middle of that, I was part of a thing called Glen. They gathered 65 pastors from all around the world who are all under 45 to start telling the story of what, what God was doing globally. So I was with pastors from the States and Canada, from Australia and Malaysia and India. Indonesia, just to name a few. And we gathered together. None of us knew each other just hearing what God is doing. And I just want to just say before I get going, just be encouraged. God is moving all over the world in most amazing of ways. And you just be really, really encouraged. And so I was hanging out with all these leaders, and I was hanging out with a, a, a new friend of mine, a pastor uh, from Seattle, and him, his, his story and my story are so unbelievably different, yet we're united in Jesus. And he stopped and he said, hey, John, I said, hey, what's going on? he said, you know, I've almost got killed in London uh, 10 times in the last week. It's such a dangerous city. And I was like, what, what conference are you at? I'm, I'm, what am I What am I missing? And he went, well, uh, they drive on the wrong side of the road in this country, and i I keep stepping out, and I'm like, oh, I can relate to that. I've had about five encounters this week. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to London. It's one of my favorite cities globally on earth, and, and if you've been there, you know that there's been so many accidents that at all major intersections where there are lots of visitors, it is written right on the ground. Look left, look right. It's painted in large white letters. But what's so amazing is I kept not looking, and I kept looking the way I've been taught, and of course, I almost got hit multiple. Times. And I said, that is a very helpful image for us when we talk about the essence of our faith. See, we're born into sin. We're born selfish. And so we, in, in our inclination, our DNA, our very uh, essence tells us to look and do one thing. And yet when we meet Jesus, suddenly there's these bright white letters that say, don't do this, now do that. And we need to read the Word of God, and then we need to begin to think differently based on the Word and look in a different direction. I was thinking when I was in London, it took me at least one week to start to reorient even a little by thinking and not get hit by a car. How much more true for us in our faith? Now, we're coming to the end, of course, of the ministry year. Summer is upon us. It's beautiful outside. Finally, no more ice storms. Thank God for all of that. And as we're coming to the end, last week, Dave and I got up here and we talked about vision. And we reminded the church what our vision is. And we talked about the next things that are about to happen. A, a third service here, for example, in Ajax. And, and, and how uh, West Pickering is going to be coming online in just over a year. And we announced all these significant things. But we also need to remember why we exist whether you've grown up in church your whole life or not, we need to know not just our vision and the uniqueness of this church, we actually need to be reminded or learn for the first time why church is church. And it's summarized in our mission statement, which is, by the way, the same for every church on earth in some form. Our mission is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And you might ask, well, what do you mean by fully devoted? What does a fully devoted follower of Jesus look like? And of course, we're all coming from different places. Some of us are seekers or skeptics. Some of us became Christians this year, and we have no starting point or idea. Others have walked with Jesus for a long time, and we have lots of words or ideas. Other Christians come from other churches, so they have a different nuance, and it causes confusion. And so in the fall, when we gathered and started this ministry year, we announced we needed a common script so we can all walk together, pioneer together in the same direction with the same understanding as we personally decide to become followers of Jesus and also as a church follow Jesus, the author, pioneer, and perfecter of our faith. But that still leaves us with the question... What is a follower of Jesus, let alone a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Now, the original word for our movement and for us, if you are a Christian, is not Christian. Christian was an insult used against us in the first 30 years of our movement, which we redeemed and thought was great and took it. The original language that was used is the word disciple. But disciple is such a churchy word. We use the word disciple or discipleship all around the world in all sorts of churches. It's an ancient idea. But many of us who've walked with Jesus for days, months, years, or decades don't understand the power of the word disciple. Let me, once again, quote a guy named Ray Vanderland that I did at the beginning of the year. He says, you know, like rabbis of his day, Jesus had disciples. Now, disciples' deepest desire was to follow their rabbi so closely that they'd start to think like the rabbi and act like the rabbi. Like other rabbis of his day, Jesus had disciples, devout followers who were probably in their mid-teens. Gifted students would approach a rabbi and ask, may I follow you? In effect saying, do I have what it takes to be like you, rabbi? Now the rabbi would make the decision, either accept the student, yes, or say no and send him away to pursue a trade. But Jesus broke this pattern when he chose his own disciples. He asked his disciples to follow him, and they knew without a doubt that their rabbi believed in them. Now let's just stop, and if I could have everyone's attention for a moment. This is fundamentally huge, and we miss this. We who grew up in church read the Bible, oh yeah, Jesus picked Peter, James, and John. No, rabbis never did this. And this is so powerful, and this is giving us the first glimpse into the profundity of the gospel, because we are not reconciled to God by doing good works, or who we are. God chooses us. God introduces himself to us. He says, I'm going to actually tell you, you're going to be my disciple. And why does that matter? Because we know right at the beginning, we can trust in his work, and we are different because he's done the work, and we don't need to prove anything anymore. So Jesus starts discipleship in a completely different way. And then this is what happened. He says, a disciple followed a rabbi everywhere, often not even asking or knowing where they were going. They would rarely leave the rabbi's side for the fear that they'd miss a teachable moment. He watched the rabbi's every move, noting how he acted and thought in a variety of situations. Disciples trusted their rabbis completely. They worked passionately to incorporate the rabbi's actions and words into their lives. The disciples' deepest desire was to follow the rabbi so closely that they'd think like the rabbi and act like the rabbi. Or as this person, when he was writing this book, said, if you really want to understand discipleship, it's this. They wanted to walk so close to the rabbi, they'd be covered in the dust of their rabbi's feet. So if we're going to be followers of Jesus, and oh, I hope you've caught it, you can't be a Christian and not be a disciple. So if you are going to be a genuine follower of Jesus, to be like Jesus, to be covered in Jesus's dust, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus, then we have to ask, where can we find Jesus to know him and be like him and keep hearing from him and be transformed in him and by him in an ongoing way? So let me do this again, what I preached at part of our conference, what I preached early in September, what I preached earlier last spring And I ask these questions, where are there guaranteed places of encounter between everyday human people trying to follow Jesus the rabbi, and where is Jesus himself? You're like, oh, John, I've heard this so many times, I know, but vision leaks and mission leaks, and we need to look down and learn how to keep walking in the right direction. Here's the question I asked, if we walk in certain environments, if I walk in certain places, if I do certain practices, will I always find Jesus? Is that a right expectation? And the answer is yes. Though God is omnipresent, He is everywhere in all places and spaces, God, according to the Scriptures, comes close in certain places. You say, well, John, where's that? Well, the very first guaranteed place of finding Jesus is when actually the message of Jesus is spoken. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for whoever believes, Jews or non-Jews. Now, that word power we've learned as a community is where we get our modern English word dynamite from. The gospel within itself has sheer power. It's dynamic. It is the very fundamental place where the Holy Spirit brings all of God the Father's election and calling, and the whole work of Jesus, past, present, and future, into effect within a life by the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is always around, always above, always below, always behind the giving of the gospel. Whether someone says yes or no is actually not the point. Jesus is present every time His message is given. Now, the second place of guaranteed encounter of Jesus and us is the Scriptures. The Bible is always a guaranteed place of encounter between God and His people. The Holy Spirit is always present, always overshadowing these words. Here's what Paul wrote when he was describing the Old Testament, but now applies to the New. Even Peter himself called Paul's words Scripture. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired from God, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to understand what the nature of Scripture is, look at how Jesus treated Scripture. Listen to what Jesus says about Scripture. Because he tells us it's actually the Word of God. It actually is what forms us. See, here's what the Bible says about itself. The Holy Spirit is always about leading all of us into God's truth. This is where the holy faith is passed down. This is where Jesus' teachings are found. This is where God's stories and thoughts and his revelations and his commands and his promises, his self-revelation is found in the Scripture, in the Bible, in the written Word of God. See, the Holy Spirit not only leads us and teaches us, he actually is the author of the Scriptures, 66 books, numerous writers, but behind them all there is one author. The Holy Spirit leads us and speaks us through and forms us by the Bible. That is why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. In the unity, in vast diversity. In diversity, great unity. And the image in my mind is the Holy Spirit is always hovering over the Scriptures, pointing and illuminating, but you can never divorce the written Word of God from the living Word of God who is Jesus and His Spirit. And you will never understand the Scriptures if you do not have Him in your life. The third place of guaranteed encounter as I've preached so many times before are spiritual disciplines. Spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines are the only ongoing place of transformation and hearing God once you've said yes to Jesus. Holy habits keep your rabbi-like relationship alive. Balance after you say yes. And why does this matter? Here's when this starts getting really close to home whether you've heard it or not before. See Jesus who's not just our Savior and our Lord, but our model. Jesus used these practices to walk with the Father. And so here's when the bomb begins to drop. Here's when the light bulb goes off. To be like Jesus, if He truly is your rabbi for real, then you have to walk like Jesus did, and you choose to share in His lifestyle. See, spiritual disciplines aren't optional in the buffet of spirituality for Christians. They are fundamental to following our rabbi Jesus. They provide the ongoing dynamic experience and our positionally given reality. Oh, yes, right now, before God the Father, because of Jesus' work, I'm perfect in the sense that He has saved me. But down here, I need to keep walking with Him. They help close the holiness gap. They give us a script and experience to share with each other. Simplicity, confessing our sins to each other, prayer, fasting, service, solitude, silence, study, just to name a few. And if you're not catching this, let me say this again. If Jesus used these to walk with the Father, if you are a disciple, then these are not optional. These are essential because we want to be covered in the dust of Jesus, I think. Now, the fourth area of guaranteed encounter is spiritual gifts. Why? Why? You're saying, John, spiritual gifts again. Yes, why? Because they're the only ongoing place to actually do God's kingdom work from. Jesus used spiritual gifts. And if Jesus used spiritual gifts, then he's not just our savior and our leader, he's our model. And so since Paul calls us together the body of Christ, we are called to use the same gifts to imitate and act like Jesus, our rabbi. Gifts are related to doing. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is about our character. You yourself will not have all 21 gifts, but we're called all to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Like I've preached so many times before, what you were born with, natural abilities or learned abilities can be used for God, but they are not a guaranteed place of power to see the kingdom of God supernaturally spread. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. and these spiritual gifts are the work of the one and same Holy Spirit, and he distributes them just as he de- determines. See, the Holy Spirit's presence is guaranteed every time you actually use a spiritual gift because actually you can't use spiritual gifts without his presence because he's the giver of the gift. He is the one who gives the gas in the car, and he's the car itself. And why does this matter again? Because Jesus himself use spiritual gifts. Jesus had the gift of teaching. Jesus had the gift of miracles. Jesus had the gift of mercy. So if Jesus, to demonstrate what it looks like to walk a holy, normal Christian life, used gifts, then we are called to do the same. Now the next area of guaranteed place of encounter is what we're doing at this very moment, gathered worship. And like I've said so many times before, what happens when we worship? What is happening when we sing, give, read together? What happens when we serve communion together? What happens when we witness baptisms together? Well, like we've all said, honestly, sometimes it's epic and great and exciting and sometimes I'm bored and sometimes I don't wanna be there and sometimes I'm inspired, I don't like the preacher, I like the worship, no, no. A thousand things affect what happens when we walk into environments like this. Personality, week, sin, music style, my day, my week, my children, my friends, my bank account. Listen, but here's the point. The Bible declares that in these moments, heaven touches earth. In in these moments, we walk into, as the old theologians used to say, we walk into the environment where angels fear to tread. When we sing and we give, we enter into God's presence through Jesus the high priest with all the angels. And as I've preached before, but let me say this again because we forget this. We at this moment are all supernaturally by the Spirit connected to every Christian on earth, but we are also connected to every Christian who's already died in the presence of Jesus. Death does not separate. There is not two bodies of Christ. There is one body of Christ. At this moment, my great-grandmother is in the presence of Jesus, and though I can't talk to her right now, we are united by the Spirit of God, and when we worship together in this community, we are joining all the angels and my great-grandmother and everyone else who's faithful, Abraham and Noah and fill in the blank, and we together enter into this environment and we worship the true living God, the Father through the Son by the Spirit. This has totally changed the way I prepare for church. I was sharing this a few weeks ago when we did our conference. I used to come to church with a thousand things on my mind because I helped lead this place, that still exists. But the new discipline that I have now invoked is this, is every time I'm in the car, I did it this morning, It doesn't matter how how my week was, who's doing what in the church, whether I know the good or bad things happening behind the scenes. I declare out loud that God, you declare in your word that you are holy and you inhabit the praises of your people. So I know that when I walk in that room, no matter who's leading, I will encounter the living God of heaven and earth. When I read the book of James and it says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you, that's not metaphor. That is true. I expect to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, where two or three gather in my name, I am there. That's not allegory. That is truth. I expect to meet my rabbi, Jesus, every single time I go to church. My expectation has changed. Why does this matter? Because when we all come expectant, guess what happens? We meet him. We meet him. Now, another great guaranteed place of encountering God is what we're about to do, communion. Do I believe Jesus is in these elements? No. No but do I just believe this is some bare memorial conversation about what happened 2,000 years ago? No. The breaking of bread, communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, Eucharist is multifaceted. Of course, it's a place of remembrance. Paul said it this way, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, but it's not just past tense remembrance. It's why we as Christians use the word communion, to commune, to be with. In other words, this environment is a place where we are actually with our Rabbi Jesus and with others. We are not called to be alone. It is not good for us to be alone. And this meal that we are about to take uh, in all of our sights today, this is a place where Jesus is present. The juice and the bread aren't Jesus. They don't turn into Jesus. They are symbols that focus our attention. But Jesus is at every table when we meet. It's a place of forgiveness. Jesus eats with sinners even today and he reminds us that what the psalmist said is true. His mercies are new what? Every morning. Then of course there's the act of water baptism. Now this year has been an amazing year. We've baptized 84 people. I think we can celebrate that again today which is amazing. It's really encouraging. Just for context again and all praise to God that's the average size of an average Canadian church. But let me ask something to all of you who refuse to get baptized, uh, you who are Christians, not you who are seeking your skeptics. Why do you think you have the right not to? And, and I'm, I'm not angry, I'm asking this question, and here's why. Because Christianity, being a Christian, isn't separate from discipleship. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord. He's one package. How did Jesus start his ministry? He was baptized. Why? Because he needed to get baptized? No. He was modeling again for us what? What a normal Christian discipleship life looked like. If your rabbi, if Jesus is your rabbi and he started everything, his ministry, with water baptism, then why do you refuse to be washed in what he was washed in? Why do you refuse to be covered in the dust of his feet? See, this is not an intellectual problem or a theological problem. This is a discipleship problem. You have a wedding ring issue you need to resolve. Because at the heart of it, water baptism is a beautiful, joyful, celebratory description that Jesus decided to say, you get to be my disciple, and I'm your rabbi, and you just want to publicly tell the world, yes, he's my rabbi, and my lord, and my king, and I'm wearing that wedding robe, and I'm wearing all of that stuff, and I just want to declare how good he is to me. Why do you refuse to do what your rabbi has already done? That is why Jesus' last words to the church were Matthew 28, therefore go and make what? Converts? Christians? No. Disciples, those who think and act like Jesus, of who? Certain groups of people? No. All people. And what's the very first thing? Oh, you baptize them in the name of the Father who called them, and the Son who died and rose from them, and the Spirit who fills them, and you teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Why? So you can be a good disciple. And surely, he says, I'm with you to the very end of the age. I will always, always be present and accessible as your rabbi. Now, the last guaranteed place of encounter is suffering. Now, let me make this clear. I'm not talking about random suffering. I'm not talking about, well, I robbed a bank and I'm suffering, so I'm suffering. No, no, you robbed a bank. You're going to jail. This this is not what we're speaking about. We're talking about when you suffer for the good news of Jesus Christ when you're mocked or attacked or uh, whatever, this is what it's talking about. And now you understand what a disciple is, one who thinks like their rabbi and acts like their rabbi and wants to be covered in the dust of their rabbi. Now listen to Peter, who was one of the very first disciples ever called, and now he's an old man. And listen to what he talks about in the connection of suffering and encounter. First Peter 2.21, to this you were called, because Jesus suffered for you, ready? Leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Suffering is not a sign of the devil all the time, and suffering is not just a sign. Actually, suffering is the calling of an average Christian, and Jesus' suffering is the example we are called to imitate as his disciples. That is why Paul who understood discipleship language and rabbi language, because he studied under one of the greatest rabbis of actually the last 2,000 years, Gamaliel, when he was very old, wrote these words in Philippians, where he said, I want to know Jesus. And you're like, you know Jesus way more than most of us. He says, yes, but I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want to participate in his sufferings. Becoming like Jesus in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. See, do you, do you, is it connecting it? Let me connect it for you. You begun, I begin to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. We begin to truly understand discipleship. When we say the same message, that Jesus said about himself. When we are formed by and live underneath the book that he actually was formed by and lived under. When we use the same spiritual disciplines he used, we begin imitating him. When we walk in the same power source he had, then we're becoming his disciples. When we worship and give God glory like he did, we're becoming his disciple. When we participate in the thing he instituted called communion, when we choose to be baptized like he was baptized, and when we suffer like he suffers, suddenly discipleship cannot be divorced from Christian. You're not a Christian because you were born in a Christian family. You're not a Christian because you come from a certain ethnic group and we're not, we're Christians, not Muslims. No, no, no. You are a Christian if you've declared Jesus is your Savior and your Lord and you are a genuine follower, a disciple of Jesus. Now, none of these things save you. Salvation isn't earned by any of this stuff. They strengthen, they give space. Because remember, God chose you to be a disciple. You didn't choose him. But then they provide the ongoing space for the Spirit of God to take us to Jesus and Jesus to the Father. But like I've preached before, and let me do it again, there's one critical thing we all need to continue to grasp on to: Personal holiness and character are critical. The power and the person you meet when you walk into these guaranteed environments can be grieved muted, dampened, ignored. Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Oh, you're saved till the day of redemption. He's going nowhere. You're not big enough to kick him out of his own house, but you can grieve him. So if you come to these guaranteed places of encounter, and you're intentionally living a life of sin, or you're refusing to give up on one issue, or, or something, listen, then you actually are pushing down, or attacking, or causing pain, or ignoring the Spirit of God. When you grieve the Spirit, gifts don't disappear, they just dim. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, the spiritual practices become powerless, because they just become vehicles to get us to someone, but when we meet the someone, we grieve him when we get there. Do not grieve the one, for he's the one that we want to meet. So now let me walk it out this way. Now we know that a disciple is someone who wants to think and act fully like their rabbi. To be covered in the rabbi's dust. and, And doesn't even ask where we're going next. Just almost blindly follows. And now we know that there are guaranteed places to find the person we want to follow. Now we need to come back at the end of this ministry year and review how we've defined discipleship here. Uh, Once again, we, we need to review and understand the language that we've chosen here so we can actually be more devoted followers together. And remember, it's not just common language. Here's what we're trying to get to. We want to continually provide an opportunity for every single one of us to evaluate where we really are on the discipleship journey. Starting with this, am I even a disciple? Because when you look at the scriptures, it says in, one of the, in Peter's writings, we have to even see if we are saved. That's not a threat, it's just an honest thing. Let us see if we are part of the elect. Because if there's zero fruit, you're not a disciple. <laughs> and then if you are a disciple, then all of us come without fear or trepidation because Jesus has already called us and we know he believes in us. And he, then we say, okay, so how can I evaluate where I really am? See, if you've grown up in church, and I know many of you have, disciple and Christian and holiness and sanctification. All these words are thrown out all the time. But then the engineer in the audience and the mathematician is going, okay, sure, great. Show me what to do. How do I evaluate where I'm at? And most people go, well, it's just the Spirit. Yes, but we actually need to see where we are because how do we know where to go next if we don't know where we are now? And that's why we began to craft this stuff. And like the descriptions we're giving, they are fundamentally based in guaranteed encounter, uh, guaranteed places of encounter. So what are the five phrases we used? Celebrate big, connect small, walk with Jesus, share the work, engage in mission. Now let me again preach this, and I'm gonna preach this in the fall again. Why? Because this is how we evaluate even where we're at. Celebrate big. Oh, we believe in celebrating God together in big gatherings. The very first Christian movement within days and then months moved from 2,000 to 3,000 to 5,000, probably over to 10,000 meeting in the temple courts. We rally, we love, we're drawn to gatherings, we're preaching, teaching, worship, prayer, giving, communion, and baptism are done, and we want to do this because we know God is present among us. Whether we're in an incredibly discouraging season in life, we're bored out of our mind, or this is the most amazing season ever, we are biblically called to celebrate big and celebrate the goodness of God together regardless of circumstance. Whether we cling to his promises or we're thanking him for answered prayers, we celebrate big. And why? Because Jesus is always here when we gather. And Jesus, in his life, regularly went to large worship. If you want to be like the rabbi Jesus, you do what he did. And this is so important. Now, there's over 3,000 people that now belong to this church. And by the way, that's a true number. The fish really is that big, which is good. Okay, you can clap. Great. Excellent. Sorry, I wasn't expecting that. Some of the people in the back, I'm not sure. Okay, it's okay. So, but here's one of the things that we just know. The average person in this church comes to Sunday gatherings like this twice a month. That's the average gathering of an average committed person in this church. Now, let me just say this again. Why do we keep wrestling with you as a family to make this more of our priority in the middle of horseback riding and dance and fill in all the blank? Here's why. Because pastors have egos and we need more numbers? No, that's our problem. We're trying to work that through. Here's the reason. Because Jesus is here. And because actually this is one of the most guaranteed places of encounter communion, baptism, prayer, preaching. The reason why we keep talking about this is not so leaders feel better about themselves, because this is how God has designed connection with him. And this must be a priority. Sunder a few weeks ago said, don't start believing that you're a profound disciple and making church one of a... No, no, no. This is where the living God gathers. We now are his temple, the people of God. Now, it's not just gathering big, it's also connecting small. We talked about this in Acts 2 last week. Yes, they met in temple courts, but they also broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. See, gathering small is just as as key as gathering large. Eating together, sharing with each other, helping each other, having a close relationship. We always talk about connect groups here, the way we define it, where someone notices your spiritual growth. Someone's there when a tough thing happens to you. Connecting small over time is about authentic relationship unpacking your walk with Jesus, how's the sermons affecting you and your thinking, trusting others to do the same, praying together, eating together, laughing together, crying together, learning, supporting, caring. These are the great gifts of connecting small. And oh, by the way, small churches and large churches have the same problem. Just because you go to a small church doesn't mean everyone knows each other. It's an intentional decision to do this. And why would we say this is non-negotiable? Oh, because Jesus did this. Our rabbi not only gathered actually daily, but weekly for worship gatherings. He kept hanging out with 12 people for three and a half years. Connection in a small way over a long period of time isn't optional. It's what our rabbi did, and to be covered in his dust, it is what we must do. Now, the third one is a personal decision. It's you choosing to walk with the rabbi, we see in the early church, yes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but there's this deep personal desire to be with Jesus. Oh, C4 can provide all sorts of things, connect groups and teaching and worship and serving opportunities, but we cannot force anybody in this church for you to walk with Jesus. I can't ring your doorbell at 6.45 in the morning. Three thousand, good morning. I just want you to turn on you version this morning. What, what version would you like today? I can't do this for you. Every person in this church has to make the decision that they so love Jesus and want to access the Father and walk in the Spirit that actually this personal walking is critical. That is why we talk so much about spiritual disciplines, prayer, and scripture reading, and biblical meditation, and solitude. Why? Because these are the ways you personally walk with Christ. The ongoing rhythm between you and Jesus is critical. Reading your Bible, praying, listening. Why? Because Jesus did with his Father. Have you ever known noticed how inappropriate Jesus was with crowds? It's brilliant. Jesus has got thousands of people. He's breaking bread and fish and all this. And he's like, yeah, this is, I got to go. They're like, disciples like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is like the most amazing. He says like, I, I, I'm out. They're like, no, you can't. They're all the people. You've got to preach. We don't know what we're doing. He's like, yeah, I'm leaving now. Where are you going? I'm just going to hang out with the father. Why? What a waste of time. Look at the crowd. Jesus isn't just our Savior, and Jesus isn't just our Lord. He is our model. And what is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, what does he show us? He actually says that spending personal time with God affects the whole of the walk. The whole of the walk comes out of, as they used to say, the prayer closet. So you're going to walk in those places. One of the things we always recommend I did in the fall is a little book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Pathways. If you've not read it, I'm going to ask you to read it. Because in that book, he not only talks about how you do this well, he talks to you about your personality and your upbringing, so you'll know actually how to spend really amazing time with God based on even how you've been designed. But the critical thing we need to understand is this. You're not always going to have fire, and Gabriel's not always going to show up. You're not always going to fall down in your Bible study time with Jesus. But here's what we know. When you commit long-term with Jesus personally, you will meet him, you will be changed. And why does this affect the whole community? Because if every person is walking personally with Jesus, the rabbi, and becoming more like him, when we gather together, his presence just goes through the roof. The other one is share the work. Like I've said, we believe so strongly in spiritual gifts because it's the epicenter of Jesus' ministry, Paul, Peter, and others. And since these are spirit-given, you'll get immense joy if you find out what they are, you use them, and burnout rates drop in churches because there's a power behind you that are not based on your own actions. When you start working in spiritual gifts and your character's growing, suddenly this amazing thing happens because the temptation of comparison, you need to be like me and I need to be like you, begins to drop off. And then this beautiful, very Christian, very unhuman thing happens where we do not actually believe in independence or dependence, but interdependence. And we begin to rely on each other as the spirit works. And why must we do this? Oh, because Jesus used spiritual gifts and if he used them, we must use them too. The last one is engaging in mission. It's the category of generosity. We see this in Acts 2. It's telling the good news of Jesus to friends and neighbors and strangers and family members. It's also just being profoundly generous with your time and your money. Generosity is always a sign of a genuine disciple of Jesus. This is why we've worked so hard even locally and globally, to actually build partnerships so we can serve here and around the world. But if you read Acts two forty seven carefully, it says that the early church enjoyed the favor of not some people, not just Christians, all the people. Why? Because they were struck by the love of God and the generosity of the people. And here's the thing we need to understand. Generosity is the enemy of mammon. Generosity is the enemy when money says that it is God. Money lies. Mammon lies. Generosity does not lie. And when people are not owned by what, oh, <coughs> what they have, and when people become generous with their time and their money and even their lives and the good news of, people, good news of Jesus, people will come and say, we don't get you, but you are different. Because it is the opposite of our culture. Now, I just want to say, don't misunderstand what we've just been through. These actions and environments are not just a to-do checklist especially if you've grown up in church, you're like, okay, I've got my checklist. Uh, if I just check, 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 then everything, no, no, no. This is about love and then duty. Think back to what I said 30 minutes ago. Jesus broke all the rules by, by not making people come to him, but he went to them and said, you are my disciple. Oh, you didn't choose Jesus as much as you think you did. You didn't, he chose you. He loved you first and he still loves you and will always love you. When I preached this in September, I just finished praying this prayer earlier that week. And I think it's a prayer I want to re today because it reminds us where discipleship has its rootedness. It reads like this, God who is very near, you never insist we show our spiritual mettle by going on epic journeys. We're never asked to accomplish heroic feats to prove our worthiness. You have given us no ladder to climb to your heavenly heights because you came near to us. You want to see the difference between every religion on earth and us? There it is right there. Help us, this prayer was written. Help us grasp the life you offer and the one who came down from heaven for us and our salvation. We all can say together what? Amen. God loves us through Jesus, our rabbi, and we love Jesus, our rabbi, so much. We want to be in the areas where he is to be changed by him and become more like him. And the more we hang out in these areas, the more we'll find new opportunities to grow. And remember, if you were with us, some of you weren't that we designed this very simple icon. And the reason why we built this icon is because we needed something that every person, a kid, teen, young adult, adult, could draw on a napkin and within three minutes truly know where they were on the journey. So if you can just put that back up, I just want you all to see this again. At the center is Jesus, our rabbi, our king, our brother, our friend. And then these environments that we've worked out around are a very simple way for you to draw. And remember, see, it's, it's a continuum. It's not, it's not a linear thing where you do this journey and then you arrive. No, this, you can use this when you're 80 or 16 or 20. You can use this in 40 years from now. And here's the point. The closer you are to the circle, it's not a good thing. It means you're actually diminishing. You need to grow in these things. And so very quickly, you can draw this circle and you can say, actually, I've spent so little time, if I'm really honest, I, I just don't spend time with Jesus. I don't read the scriptures. I, I don't pray. So that's really weak. But I've really actually served this year out of my gifts. So I've made that really strong. And you, you can begin to see the shape of where you are in your spiritual life as a disciple. Now, you might come to the realization, I'm not a disciple. So this actually isn't relevant to you. You need to, first of all, just say yes to Jesus. But for all of us who have said yes to Jesus, this is where we begin. And you say, John, okay, why are you, why are you bringing this up again? Here's why. Because as we prepare to end this ministry year, as we're preparing for the summer and we're getting ready for another ministry year with much more to take place and more people that are gonna come to faith and more baptisms and more sites and all this, we need every single Christian in this church, every disciple in this church to have an honest evaluation of where each one of us at so we can make a decision over the summer. And it's this, where in one or two areas am I going to grow more over the summer? or more over this coming year? What am I gonna put more emphasis and priority? Maybe it's share the work. Maybe it's engaging in mission. Maybe it's spending time with Jesus. Maybe it's gonna be celebrate big. Maybe it's connecting small. Wherever you land, this is gonna become sort of foundational and keep being foundational for us. And I'm asking all of it, here's the homework. To everyone to go home this week and say, where am I truly at? And I know I say these words and most people never do it. Please do it. I went home this week and started that own journey. On Thursday this week, I started asking myself the very difficult question, where am I? And why does this matter? Because in September, we gathered. And do you remember I said this to the congregation? I said, where are you gonna grow in the next ministry year? And all of us, thousands of us took these books home, right? And we did this self-evaluation. And many of us made commitments to grow. So here's my question. Between September and June, did you actually grow closer to the rabbi like you said you would? By the way, this is not a guilty moment. This is just yes or no. Because again... We have the great, unbelievable privilege of being disciples of Jesus. And so we just wanna encourage you, in the next seven days, ask the Holy Spirit, where am I in this area? Where do I need to grow? What am I gonna make a commitment over the summer and in the coming year? Now, if you weren't with us in the fall and you're like, John, this is all new to me, it's all good. At all of our sites, if you walk out to the welcome centers, these books are available. If you lost your book, you threw it out, you recycled it, it's okay, we forgive you. You can go uh, and get them too. But this is an invitation, not a rebuke. This is an invitation for us to grow closer in our discipleship. And this is what I end with, why? Because churches exist to produce disciples. This is why we're here. And if we don't make this the priority, everything else actually gets, uh, begins to crowd out the real thing. So could we just uh, across all our sites stand for a moment and let's just take a moment to pray uh, together. Lord, thank you, number one, that actually we know why we're here. Some of us in this moment have realized we're not even disciples. And so would you begin to work that out with people? Would you begin to encounter people, to talk to people? For many others of us, Lord, uh, we do love you, and we want to be covered in your dust, and we want to be close. But actually, we need you to speak and say, where do you want us to grow close? Others of us know that we have not obeyed what we committed. So we're asking now that you'd forgive us and change us. All of us are asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in ways that are impossible without him. But here's our real simple prayer. Would this church continue to be filled with real disciples? Genuine followers of the Rabbi Jesus, who is our Savior, our leader, our model, and our Lord? Would more people come close to Jesus this summer? And may next year, many more becoming disciples for the first time. God, our Father, hear our prayer. God, God, the Son, hear our prayer. God, the Holy Spirit, hear our prayer. And we all said together, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.